Seattle's Morning News. This is Aaron Granillo sitting in for Dave Ross. Margaret Brennan, moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, now joins us. And let's get to the latest on the debt crisis first. It's been another week of negotiations to raise the ceiling. Where do we stand now? That is one of the conversations I'm going to have with Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, in his first exclusive Sunday show interview. He'll join me live Sunday, and we will talk about those upcoming talks that he hopes to have with President Biden. The White House hasn't scheduled the meeting yet. He has said he's willing to have a conversation about responsibly lifting the debt ceiling. As you know, this is uh, leverage Republicans are using to try to extract concessions on other matters. The fact that this uh, deadline is looming to to either eliminate or raise the debt ceiling. Um, but it's not clear exactly where we're headed um, other than a political and economic showdown. Uh, and so I want to get into that with Speaker McCarthy to understand um, whether there is a political solution in the immediate term and what else is possible in a divided Congress. It's not just a, a divided Congress. It's also, in a lot of ways, a divided Republican Party. So how is mm-hmm. how is the leader navigating these talks with members of his own GOP, which can't seem to agree on the best path forward? an important point because the Republican majority is so narrow that they don't have a lot of spare votes. And so that means those rebels have extra weight in the conversation in terms of their demands. There's also the framing here. In order to get the votes to become speaker in the first place, uh, Mr. McCarthy did have to make some concessions to those rebels. And so there's that broader question of what is the leverage he actually has within his own party to get those caucus members in line? Can he get them all to line up to to move on the debt ceiling if he does broker a a deal with the White House? Um, So it's sort of two negotiations there. And it raises that question of whether in some ways you may need to see Democrats come together and work with some centrist Republicans and come up with the required number of votes that way. Who really does have the leverage, though, in these talks? I mean, obviously, Republicans control the House at the moment. But do does that more, as you call the, the rebels of the Republican Party, do they really have the leverage in these talks at the moment? Or is it McCarthy and the more traditional sort of fiscally conservative Republicans? Well, right now, um, from from some of the reporting my colleagues have done, we know behind the scenes there are quiet conversations happening among some of the Republicans who are trying to work across the aisle to come to a, an agreement. The question is, does that get to... Um, enough of a place that you have enough votes to pass it. In other words, does the speaker um, really play a role here? Or is it sort of a a (laughs) bottom-up solution from within the ranks? Is it something like we saw back in 2011, where you had then uh, Vice President Biden working with Senator Mitch McConnell over in the Senate to help broker a deal in order to help out and embattled Republican leader, who at that time was Speaker Boehner. Uh, and we all know how that ended um, in, in terms of him essentially being ousted by some of the more conservative members of his party. So there are solutions here, but in terms of an active negotiation between McCarthy and the White House, there's none to speak of, at least if you believe the Speaker's tweet late yesterday, where he said, I'm, I'm waiting on an appointment um, to, to have that face to face with the president. Right. And, and I know, you know, the Republicans or some of them, at least, have been calling for spending cuts as sort of a, a negotiating tactic to try to reach a deal here. What are those spending cuts they're talking about, though? I've not seen any specifics. I know there have been rumblings that perhaps about what cutting Social Security, but that that seems risky at best politically. 
absolutely sort of the third rail, as is uh, slicing defense spending. And under the agreement that Speaker McCarthy brokered in order to get the votes to become leader, um, he did uh, agree to trying to cap 2024 spending levels at 2022 levels. And that would necessitate some pretty significant cuts. So there will need to be, at least if this agreement stands, some significant belt tightening. But that's a conversation about spending in the new year. That is about, um, uh, you know, uh, some of the broader issues Republicans are raising to Democrats. It isn't linked to the debt ceiling. That's a separate vote. Um, and the White House wants to keep it separate. It's, it's the Republicans who are trying to link them to use the debt ceiling deadline as leverage to get other concessions on other matters. So uh, the White House has indicated they want to keep them separate. Um, and we may end up in a place where certainly there do need to be some reductions in spending, but very hard um, to, to cut things that people rely on, like Social Security and Medicare. Let's move on now to uh, classified document drama. Another round of classified documents found this week, this time in the former vice president, Mike Pence's home. I see you have uh, the two top members of the Senate Intelligence Committee on your show. What are Senators Marco Rubio and Mark Warner telling you about this latest development? Well, this was a bipartisan interview, an important one, um, and I think it really underscores the, the unity here in terms of demands for answers as to insight um, into what's in the materials that were found that were marked classified in all these various locations, because the in, when it comes to this committee that has oversight of the intelligence community, they want to judge whether there actually was a risk to national security. Is it just a matter of record keeping? There's certainly at the Justice Department the question of criminality and intent, but in the intelligence community, um, they want to understand whether there was any risk here. There's diminishing value to intelligence over time, certainly, but is there a a risk of compromising sources and methods? Those are some of the things that the senators laid out in this conversation, and they are demanding answers sooner rather than later. They don't want to wait for the Justice Department to finish its investigations. I've only seen media reports about what could be in those documents. Do we actually have any confirmation of what was in President Biden's home, uh, the former vice president's home, and the former president Donald Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago estate? When it comes to President Biden in his private office and then in his Wilmington home, CBS has reported that the number of documents numbered between 25 and 30 and that they were classified materials, marked classified. Uh, in terms of the, the classification levels, in terms of the contents of what was in those papers, no, we don't have that detail. When it came to President Trump, it was 300 pages of classified materials um, of varying classification levels, including TSSDI. We have reported that. That's a very high level of um, of classification. So that, that indicates a level of seriousness here. I don't have insight into what Vice President Pence found uh, in terms of the documents that were in his Indiana home. But all of this brings us back to that question um, of, of what was in them in terms of risk level. But clearly, this was mishandling of classified information. And that's an important thing to try to fix. Moderator of CBS Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Aaron Granillo in for Dave Ross. Democrats, Republicans and the governor show a unified front regarding traffic safety. 
And the fights over a capital gains tax went before the state Supreme Court. Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich joins us live to break it all down. Matt. Good morning, Aaron. It's uh, day 19 of the 105-day session, and if Sully's still there, he probably wanted to talk about this. Let's start with traffic safety. Uh, um, uh, that was a big topic yesterday, and that's that unified force that I was you were just mentioning. The governor, the leadership of the transportation committees in both the House and the Senate, you know, both Democrats and Republicans, as well as uh, washed-out workers, troopers, support staff. I would just say about, about 40 people stood behind the lectern to talk about traffic safety. Um, Chris has been reporting on it because there's a bunch of you know, there's been uh, 745 people killed in crashes in 2022. That's according to the Washington Traffic Safety Commission. That's the highest number since 1990. So you now, and I'm talking the politics here, you, there's this visible show of force that everybody can agree on traffic safety. That includes, like what Chris has been reporting on, uh, speed cameras and work zones, um, adding, um, uh, even banning right turn, red light, uh, excuse me, right turns on a red light and adding more troopers and then Governor Inslee hopes that uh, everyone can agree that adding more troopers could target more speeders. Speed kills and it is killing more people now and that's why this issue of having more police officers to help enforce our speed limits that are reasonable is absolutely critical. I'm committed to this and I think the legislator is committed to get more people out there to help us have reasonable speeds. Matt, I want to follow up on the, uh, the red light right turn. That would be a right. statewide deal? You can do that in Certain municipalities? Um, Well, as it stands right now, uh, whenever there is a state law, that's going to supersede local jurisdiction, Hmm. and that would be the correct. Uh, I mean, we've all enjoyed that right turn on a red. yeah. Yeah, um, that could go away, but that's all a part of an attempt to... uh, to uh, improve safety because of what happens in intersections. And what happened in one intersection, um, Amber Wheeler, who basically, I don't want to use the words, stole the show, but um, talked about the pain of losing her 13-year-old son, Michael, when he was hit by on his bike by someone entering a bad intersection, a troublesome intersection in Parkland. My son is gone. There's no do-overs. The pain lasts forever. It's, it's permanent and irreversible. I can think over and over, replaying my mind the what ifs. What if I had given my son one last hug before he left that day? And once again, uh, her tearful testimony at this uh, press event with uh, the governor there and the leadership of the transportation committees, uh, that really brought it home for a lot of people in this packed room. Um, and so that's, that's about traffic safety. There was another big thing as you were mentioning there, Aaron, uh, yesterday. And that actually happened across the street from the Capitol. If you've never been in the Capitol, you have the Capitol building where the legislators meet, and right across the street is the uh, state Supreme Court. And they heard a very, very important case that a lot of lawmakers, a lot of people of all incomes are watching very closely. And it's another attempt at what is income tax in the state of Washington. Uh, They heard the case about a capital gains tax that was passed and signed into law in 2021. In fact, the state has been collecting the tax ever since. And it's basically a 7% tax on anything 
uh, on the sale of stocks and bonds, and the first $250,000 is exempt. And the uh, supporters say it's not an income tax, whereas opponents say it is an income tax, and an income tax in this state is unconstitutional. Attorney Paul Lawrence argued in favor of the capital gains tax in front of the justices. We were very happy how the argument went. The justices asked probing questions of both sides uh, and clearly were interested in the issues both about the reasons for supporting a capital gains tax and also questioning some of the old income tax cases which are also hamstringing the ability of the legislature to act equitably in this area. I know you mentioned, Matt, that the state has already been collecting this tax. So what happens if the state Supreme Court strikes it down? Do people who've been paying into this, do they get a refund check from the state? Uh, the assumption is uh, the state the state's been collecting it, putting it aside supposedly like in a, in a little fund, mm-hmm. uh, but it's been collecting it ever since, and they haven't spent it. Mm-hmm. But uh, everybody has an eyeball on how much money that would collect. And you know, there's also a proposal this uh, session for a wealth tax. We talked about this is a seven percent on the sale of tax uh, bonds and stocks. First two hundred fifty thousand dollars exempt. Now the wealth tax is targeting basically. Nearly a thousand people in the state where it's the seven percent tax and it's the first two hundred fifty million that's exempt. So um, they're really going after wealthy, and that's basically the same argument. Is that an income tax or a wealth tax? Um, and what the money would have gone to for this capital tax, uh, the capital gains tax that's being collected right now, is going to go to education. Larry Delaney is the president of the Washington Education Association. That's the teachers union. Our students, our teachers, and our communities desperately need the $500 million investment that the revenues from this tax will provide. $1 billion per biennium. Students are waiting for mental health supports and more funding for special education services. Teachers desperately need more resources to make sure that their students succeed. The Washington Policy Center has been fighting this pretty hard, right? I mean, they're arguing that uh, excise, like you mentioned, is an income tax. Hasn't there been plenty of court rulings to support what the Policy Center is arguing here, that excise tax is income tax and therefore unconstitutional in our state? Well, it comes down to the definition of of income as property. That's mm-hmm. what the courts have ruled is that in this state, if you earn a dollar, that's considered property. Now, you can tax property. Uh, so that's where the argument is. I'm, I'm oversimplifying a very complicated argument. Well, what, what, other examples, what other examples are there where certain properties are taxed that are considered excise taxes in this state? I mean, we have real well, estates and... Well, I mean, when you have a car, right. uh, you have an excise tax on the sale of a car, and that's considered, but it's a piece of property. Right, right. You know, we understand that. You know, whether your income, whether the government here can tax your income, um, even though they consider, and if the definition of income is property, that's how they're going around the constitutional mm-hmm. element that there's no income tax in this state. So that's the end run that, that's been tried many, many times in this state. Uh, to try and get this these kind of taxes passed. And again, so everybody's going to be watching this case. It's going to be months before the justices give a ruling on it, but it's going to be one of the most important rulings in the last decade or so about taxes going forward. Right. You want to talk about uh, digital driver's licenses here, Yeah, Matt? one last yeah. thing. It seems like a smart thing in this world of uh, smartphones that you can actually put your driver's license on a smartphone and then just show that. Um, 
Sounds like a good idea. Five states are already moving forward in that. And uh, the uh, bill had said that the Department of Licensing had to have everything ready by next year. But even the bill's prime sponsor, Democratic State Senator Mark Mullet, doesn't want to create a now-famous technology dilemma. Kind of in that space of the early 80s where you had Betamax and VHS, we don't want to bet on Betamax and then find out we have to redo everything because the other states went a different direction. So what direction does Washington State, in terms of digital driver's licenses, does it go Betamax or VHS? And that's the big <laughs> dilemma, and the Department of Licensing has asked for a big delay on this. And the most likely they're going to get it. So a good concept, but right off the bat, it's going to be, uh, looks like it's going to be dead in the water, at least for at least a year or two. All right. It's Kyber News Radio's Matt Markovich. I think I might have heard a, a little cat in the background there. <laughs> I know. I you, tried to close okay? the door. Oh, Got to go feed your Simon. kitty cat there. All right, Matt Markovich, appreciate the time. <laughs> your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A 16-year-old teenage, well, yeah, 16 teenager bringing smiles to seniors' faces one pair of socks at a time. Sacra Gray with CBS affiliate KOVR has the story. Clubs, gloves, and golf balls. When heading out on the golf course, those are usually some of the essentials. But for 16-year-old El Gianelli, there's another thing to add to the checklist. I play in silly socks. I think it lightens my mood, and it's just a little good luck charm for me. It's her signature look. Every time she looks down, it's a reminder to keep on smiling. In 2020, that reminder was more important than ever. Just a few weeks before the world shut down, Gianelli went on a field trip to a senior living facility. Just a seventh grader at the time, Gianelli was touched by her interactions with the residents. When the pandemic hit, she knew she needed to do something for them. What's something I love that brings a smile to my face and might bring something to others? And that was silly socks. She created socks for seniors to send fun socks to local nursing and assisted living facilities. Two years later, she sent over 3,000 socks to facilities across the nation. She includes a note with each pair of socks, sharing her contact in case any seniors need someone to talk to. Along the way, she's gained several pen pals. And they wanted me to finish the back for them, and so we sent it back and forth to each other. At just 16 years old, Gianelli has been featured in TV interviews, even appearing in People magazine. But the reward of Socks for Seniors is much more than that. And hearing like the response, hey, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, that gentleman we posted yesterday, he passed away today. And the last thing he was so excited about was that little pair of socks. For Gianelli, it's about showing these folks that someone still cares. You never know what someone's going through. So maybe something really small, such as socks, can do something for someone. Or me writing back to them, knowing that they have someone and that they're not alone and They'll get through it. And now from the G and Ursula Show, weekdays, 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio, G. Scott. Mm. And tonight, G, we await footage, uh, police body camera footage from Memphis. We are going to see uh, another death in police custody. Uh, Memphis now bracing for riots. Uh, once that footage of the violent arrest of Tyree Nichols is released, mm-hmm. that's happening sometime tonight. Gee. Oh, man. I have uh, made sure that I did not want to talk about this all week on our show. 
uh, as we knew that uh, at some point that this this video would come out. And the reason why I didn't want to talk about it is because, first of all, talking about these things are just absolutely traumatic. Mm. When that video comes out, obviously it's going to be horrifying because it has never happened where five law enforcement officers have been fired and charged before the video even comes out. Mm-hmm. What also stands out to me is these five officers were fired, charged, and there was no pushback by a police union. None. So that in itself tells you just how bad it is. Gee, this is uh, a black man who died. The five police officers are black. Uh-huh. This is not the typical narrative that we hear often. I want to get your perspective on that. Yeah. You ever ridden on a train before? Yeah. When you rode the train, did you see who the conductor was? Mm. Most of the time you don't, right? You see, on a train, it doesn't matter who the conductor is because the train is on the tracks, mm-hmm. and the train is going that way anyways. Mm. Some of my worst experiences with law enforcement have been black officers. You see, the origin of law enforcement and policing dates back and starts when and why. It started because of slave catching. Mm. That is the root of law enforcement, of policing. And here we are, present day 2023, and now somebody's listening and saying, but gee, things have changed. Well, 30 years ago, Rodney King was beat in front of everybody, Mm -hmm. and those officers were acquitted. Philando Castile, when he was reaching for his information in his glove box, Eric Garner, I can go on and on about these stories. And so back to what you're saying, Five black police officers did this. It's unfortunate that any officer does this. And that's the entire point that I'm trying to make is that there has been a history of these things happening to black men in this country for years. And that any color officer can get caught up in that system. You can get caught up in that system. Going back to the conductor example that I gave you. It doesn't matter the color or the origin, the culture, the background of the conductor, there's a train on the track and is going that way. It doesn't matter who the conductor is mm. because nothing, it, well, there's a been a little bit of change. Mm-hmm. And you know what the change has been? Technology. Mm. Yeah, we have proof That's now. what's changed. Mm-hmm. Technology. But years before, there was no technology. Years before, let me ask this. Who was the who was the KKK years ago? The Ku Klux Klan used to be filled with whom? Judges, police police officers. Now there's somebody saying right now a bunch of Democrats right now up under their breath. I I I, I get that, but no, we're not talking about the politics of it. Because we're not talking about the shift in Republicans and Democrats that happened at a certain yesteryear. That's in the history books. But what we're talking about is, is 
unfortunately, in law enforcement, there has been a real problem and a real root of the problem. And these are topics that before my father passed away, these are topics that we talked about. You think that when 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 he and other officers back in the 70s, when there wasn't that many of them, the things that they saw and had mm-hmm. to keep their mouth shuts about just to continue to keep their jobs. So do you think these five officers are racist because they're in a racist system or do you think they are bad cops? I think they are bad cops. Period. Okay. Yeah. Period. I want to be clear. Just because you are law enforcement does not mean that you're going to be a bad cop. There are a lot of amazing cops out here in this world. That is not some prerequisite like, yo, you want to be a police officer? <laughs> Got to be a bad cop. However, the problem over the history of time has been what? It has been protecting the truth, not saying and coming out against your officer. So for so many years, some of the a lot of the good cops did not point out the bad cops. G. Scott from the G. Nursula Show. Hear more from him 9 to noon today on Cairo News Radio. Lunar New Year celebrations continue around the world and in western Washington. Dancers work together to move an elaborate lion costume, ushering in good fortune as part of Lunar New Year celebration. Lion dances, you know, is just so fun to see. That's probably my favorite thing of the Lunar New Year. Don Diane Hongdi is with Seattle's Wing Luke Museum. It really gets your heart beating because of the drums. And that's what it's supposed to be, too. The drum is like the lion's heartbeat. It's just one of the traditions to mark the first new moon of the lunisolar calendar and a fresh start in the new year. Typically, Lunar New Year starts two new moons after the winter solstice. So uh, Lunar New Year falls on uh, end of January or early February. Celebrations can last a couple of weeks with plenty of music, often fireworks, and food. So dumplings, right, are a huge uh, part of the Lunar New Year. The whole preparation of the foods is an everybody kind of activity. So there might be someone who mixes the dough, who puts in the filling. In fact, all of the traditions seem to have evolved to bring people together in families and communities, something that was difficult to do at the height of the pandemic. You know, with what had happened in 2020, when we couldn't really gather, you know, definitely uh, made an impact on how important these uh, traditions and coming together were. And though this celebration is believed to have started in China, 35 500 years ago, Don says it can draw people of all cultures together today. When you're able to learn the history, the stories, the experiences of other communities, while also learning about your own, you kind of get a bigger picture of where you're all interconnected, where our stories parallel, right, where they intersect. And like you said, um, you know, like our, our world really isn't that big, you know, that history is something that we all share and that uh, needs to be recognized. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And part of our obligation is to educate you on the latest technology. And there's nothing more cutting edge than quantum computing. At the University of Washington, Peter Chapman has uh, worked on this for a long time. Part of the Northwest Quantum Nexus. He runs a company called IonQ. And I guess we should just uh, we should just start at the most elementary level. What makes a quantum computer different from what I've got on my desktop, Peter? 
It's a great question. So uh, your kind of, I'll call them classical computers are uh, digital. They're based on ones and zeros. Um, you could think of them just as lots of little switches. But in nature, Mother Nature does, isn't a digital world. It's quantum mechanical. Instead, what you have is uh, ones and zeros in superposition and a probability between those two. You know, we used to think of atoms as having an electron and it had a specific position, kind of like you could think of it as like a, a solar system. But what we found out was that, in fact, actually, basic molecules have a probability of being in, a, in one place, but not a certainty. And so what these uh, computers do is they use quantum mechanics to do computation. And it's really, it's a bizarre world because we uh, don't experience quantum mechanics as human beings. This only really happens down at the atomic level. And the, the rules that apply at the atomic level are just really so foreign to yours and my kind of everyday existence. But what we're doing is we're using subatomic particles to uh, build the next generation of, of uh, computing. And that's what's so exciting. And I know you guys are going to a lot of trouble to design these things. So there, there must be some holy grail or a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So what is the goal of quantum computing? What is it you're trying to achieve that can't be done with my iPhone? So it's, if you look in a quantum computer, first is it can model Mother Nature much better than you can on a classical system because it's using the same rules that nature uses. So that's the kind of first benefit. Mm -hmm. The next one is the amount of parallel computation that can be achieved. At 120 qubits, so in a classical world, you know, 120 bits is nothing, right? You're, mm -hmm. You get a, a gigabyte hard drive nowadays almost for free. So just 120 qubits would allow you to do in parallel to consider the same number of possibilities as there is atoms in the known universe, all 11 billion light years across. Jeez. So, and we're talking about building a device by the end of the decade that would have a thousand qubits, and that's two to the 880 more than there is atoms in the, the known universe. So we're we're talking about numbers which are so large, in the trillions of zeros after them. They're so large it's it's really hard to comprehend kind of the the computational power of these machines. This, so this is unimaginable computing power, and I, I'm already impressed with what Chat GPT can do on a, on a regular <laughs> machine. So if you had this, you're you're like creating another human brain. That's what it sounds like that, to me. Um, well, that is the hope, and in fact, actually, what we've seen so far is even with these early machines, is that we can best the best classical machine learning, which is what chat GPT is using, using a quantum computer. And, you know, you could kind of think of it this way. When you're sitting down in, a, in an AI sense, is that if you had one of these powerful quantum computers, it could look at, you know, trillions, billions, even much larger numbers of possible combinations to come up with an answer for you in a way that today's classical computers just can't. You have, you have little tiny subatomic particles in a vacuum protected from the outside, which you can read remotely with lasers. That's really exotic. Yeah. 
And, and this can, is. And this is this can be made to be a a, a reliable computing system, huh? Even though it seems just it just seems so delicate. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, we run uh, now with both you know Google, Microsoft, and and Amazon. We run customer jobs all day long with these, kind of twenty four seven. So yes, it can be made very reliable. Um, and in fact, actually. As you shrink them, they come. They become much more stable. So you're saying you're um, you're using these machines now for commercial purposes? We we are. Yeah, we um we're doing things like what's the best way to load planes, or mm-hmm. doing predictive part failure, or uh, predicting financial results. Really? So these things, these machines are good at solving optimization problems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, luckily, just about everything can be converted into an optimization problem. Which means that just about every every business probably needs to have a quantum computer, or at least access to one, in the years coming. Then I have to ask about the dark side. What happens if one of these things falls into Vladimir Putin's hands? So one of the applications that has already been found on quantum computing is breaking encryption. So when you send um, when you sent me an email to join today's um, conversation. That was protected with encryption mm-hmm. using RSA, which is a company that makes that encryption. They have said that it would take 300 trillion years using today's supercomputers to break just that one email's encryption. So you can feel pretty safe that it's going to work fairly well yeah. because no one's going to spend that kind of energy. Unfortunately, with a big enough quantum computer, it could be broken in seconds. Wow. So the the negative to this technology is that much of our digital life is based on encryption, which is now vulnerable to quantum computers. And is there a fix for that? Uh, there is. There's, you know, the the U.S. government is, I believe, the NIST is working on kind of what are the next generation algorithms that would be quantum safe, and then you know to go and and get industry and and the military and everyone to change their underlying technology. Presumably sometime in the future, there'll be a new version of the browser that comes out that you'll be asked to upgrade to that will have quantum safe encryption in it. Really? That is being currently worked on. I'll put a plug in now for that. When you get asked to upgrade, please upgrade. Yeah. Well, you've just gotten a uh, glimpse into the future from someone who is building that future, Peter Chapman of IonQ. Peter, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me today. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. There is a bill in the legislature which would apparently go after deep fakes in political ads. It's being sponsored by Representative Sam Lowe. So outline your bill for us. So obviously there's deep fakes out there. There's what's called synthetic media where they take a candidate or somebody's voice and they change the voice or change the image using artificial intelligence. And uh, it's becoming a a more widespread issue uh, each month. So how would you go after it? So what we're going to do is give those who are are, uh, have their voice or have their image being used in an inappropriate way, we're going to give them the option to be able to use uh, the legal process to do that. Sort of like the uh, the Texas abortion thing where anybody could sue or just the people involved? Uh, just the people involved. 
Okay. And I want to go back to something you said that there's more and more of this happening every month. I have not witnessed this yet or heard of a case of it. Can you tell me in the state of Washington how this is being done? So uh, recently there was, uh, in the last year or so, 60 Minutes did uh, did a show on this. And uh, it was actually Tom Cruise. And they, they took Tom Cruise's image and likeness and they went forward uh, and did a commercial with that. And you could look at it and you couldn't tell that there's any difference with that. And now we're starting to see candidates start to try to manipulate voices of their opponent, start manipulating images of their point uh, of their opponent and who, using this artificial intelligence. Who is doing that? We're, we're starting to see that. I, I don't want to get into specific. Well, you, you must if you're going to enact a law because of it. We're going to need specifics to see if this law is even necessary at this point. I don't want to get into specific candidates because I don't want to uh, disparage uh, those who have previously done this, but I well, do want to make sure Well, if they're breaking the law, forward. shouldn't their names be out there? Well, they're not breaking the law yet. Okay. And so we're putting this forward now to make sure candidates are on notice that this is not a direction that we want them to go. Can you give us an idea of where these ads have been seen in Washington state and a Senate race and a congressional race and a city council race with just somewhere to go off? Because it seems like this bill came out of nowhere, that there's no reason for it yet. Well, I think this is more of a preemptive type thing. And we're we're working on making sure that candidates, as they go forward, know that this is not acceptable, that they need to highlight who they are, what their record is, and not start going after their opponents with this false uh, synthetic type media. But there has been a political ad. In other words, you're saying an ad like this has been put out publicly somewhere. What I'm saying is we're starting to see the beginnings of this and and people starting to get to a line. And I think it's important that we as a state set what that line is now before it gets widespread. Is that like the Are you perhaps referring to the Nancy Pelosi ad back during the presidential campaign that was slowed down to make her look drunk? I I think you can you you and your listeners can 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 read into that and see that. But again, I don't want to name specific ones, but I think. The public is starting to see this. Well, I'm confused because at the beginning of this interview, you said we're starting to see more and more of this every month. And now you're saying this law is preemptive. So which is it? Are people using deep fakes in local political ads right now, therefore giving us a reason for this law? Or are you doing this out of an abundance of caution? What's the story? I think it's more out of caution, but I do think it's both sides of the coin. And so uh, we want to be preemptive with this. We want to make sure that this doesn't become the norm. And I think setting that boundary before it gets too far. I think we've seen it on 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 some commercials potentially, and it's starting to get into the political world. So, So we're working to make sure that people know where the line is, where the boundary is, and get this before it gets too far. And when you said you don't want to name anybody to disparage them, are there names you can name or are there no names? I'm just trying. You're making, We'd like to look for an example, yeah, I think. You're making it ad. sound like this is happening right now and more and more every month. And, and I don't want that kind of misinformation out there. So I need your story to be clear here. I think when you go through the last political cycle that we just had, I saw some ads that I had concern with on both sides of the political aisle. I don't want to make this a Republican thing or a Democrat thing, but but I saw some things that, that gave me concern. And so working uh, with the Secretary of State's office and talking through this with them, 
they help me craft this and uh, and work so that we can make sure that not saying anybody's crossed the line yet, but it looks like it's starting to go that direction. And before we get to a problem, we're going to try to correct it ahead of time. Representative Sam Lowe, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.